0: So I want to ask you just right now to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 2. The best way to engage the message is with the Bible, something to write on, and something to write with. So Matthew chapter 2, we're just going to jump right in this morning. Follow along, and especially if you've got something to write with, I've got a couple of places where I'm going to ask you to underline things. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where's the one who has been born King of the Jews? Underline that. Remember that. That This is how the Magi presented to King Herod. They asked, Who's the one who's been born King of the Jews? They're asking the man who's over the (laughs) the Jewish people, Who's the other king? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, "Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him." This is what you call disingenuous. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the king was, where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. "'Get up,' he said, "'take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt.' "'Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him.' So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, "'Out of Egypt I called my son.' When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious." He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Can you imagine having so little conscience that you wouldn't think twice about killing all the boys to make sure the one you're after gets hurt? in accordance with the time he had learned from the, the Magi. And then what was said through the prophet I, uh, Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comfort, comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to ch- take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. That's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When we were in Ecuador just a couple of weeks ago, one morning we were watching a basketball tournament among the kids. The whole school was in this basketball tournament. They had divided all the kids up in the whole school up into to different teams, and they were playing each other. And two of the teams, both, they, both teams had the uh, jerseys that were yellow. So when they played each other, it was almost impossible to figure out who was who. And it wasn't just me, because I was not an Ecuadorian. It was also the referees. Eventually, they found some blue vests, and they put them on there so at least one of the teams could figure out who the other team was. In the Wild West, or at least in Wild West movies, they have a rule about that. If you're on the bad guy team, what do you wear? You wear a black hat. And if you're on a good guy team, what do you wear? You wear a white hat. That's right or at least that's how we remember it, right? But as it turns out, because evidently there are people in the world who have so much more time than me, even that has been studied. Somebody has gone back through all the old westerns to count white hats and black hats. I want that person to get a real job. That's what I want. And as it turns out, there weren't that many white hats in the Wild West, not because there weren't a lot of good guys, but because a lot of good guys wore black hats. Who wants to wear a white hat In the dusty Old West town, who's going to try to keep that clean? So when when everyone is wearing the same color hat, how do you know the good guys from the bad guys? That's a question I'm working with while we work through this message. So in the chapter we've just read, in the story of Jesus' birth, it's not too hard to tell who the bad guy is and who the good guys are, right? Joseph, Mary, the wise men, of course, Jesus, these are the good guys. Herod is a very bad guy. But there had to be more to the story than just who's good and who's bad. The world is full of those kind of stories. A good guy in a white hat is a great story, but it doesn't necessarily produce a Messiah. <laughs> so, what else can we learn from the scene, this place of Jesus' birth with Herod and the wise men? We've just read that story in Matthew chapter 2. What I want to ask you to do now, if you've got your Bible, is to flip over to Matthew chapter 11. Because I'll, I have. This little experiment. I'm trying something. I want to run Matthew chapter 2 through this filter in Matthew 11, beginning with verse 11, because I think Matthew 2 has something profound to teach us about the kingdom of God. And I think Matthew 11 is the key, because it talks about good guys and bad guys. So Matthew 11, verse 11, begins with this. Truly, I tell you, among those, this is Jesus talking, in case your words aren't read on your page. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. And yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Chris told us this a couple of weeks ago, that that the reason that people are least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John the Baptist is because John the Baptist doesn't live on this side of the cross. (laughs) But then here's this in verse 12. Underline the whole verse. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is who was to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. So I want you to underline all of verse 12. That's the one with the meat in it. Jesus never moved far from the topic of the kingdom of heaven. It's always trying to get us to see it, to grasp it, to embrace it. It's like a seed, he'd say. It's like soil. It's like yeast. It's like something, it's something value that's um, it's under, under the surface. It's, it's something ordinary. Sometimes it's hidden. Sometimes it possesses extraordinary strength. And that unexpected strength is constantly in tension. Listen, that unexpected strength of the kingdom is constantly in tension with the anti-kingdom the kingdom of God is constantly at war with the kingdom of darkness and here in Matthew Jesus is talking about that tension between the kingdom of God and the anti-kingdom the kingdom of darkness from the days of John the Baptist until now the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it Another version phrases it this way: the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and the violent take it by force. I want you to listen to the last half of that sentence again. The, the, the violent take it by force. We're going to come back to that. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, or this is another way of saying it, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. I want to say that again. I want you to hear the difference. This is two different translations of the same line. The kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, or the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. That's a big difference, isn't it? Between being subjected to violence and forcefully Advancing, And the reason two translations can be so different is that the word, the, the Greek word, can mean both things. It depends on how you translate one sort of obscure Greek word in that sentence. So which is it? Is the kingdom of God suffering passively, enduring the violence of a non-believing world and, and overactive demons until the day when it finally limps his home? Or is the kingdom of God actively, forcefully pushing through the darkness, refusing to take no for an answer, and refusing to be rejected by people who don't like the way it looks? Which is it? Is the kingdom of God suffering violence or forcefully advancing? The answer is yes. (laughs) And that brings us back to the Christmas story. Especially in Matthew chapter 2, it seems to me that the good guys and the bad guys in this story help us to understand not only how the kingdom of God suffers violence, but also how it forces its way through. And, And I also think it helps us see why that matters to us. So let's start with the bad guy. Herod fits the description of Matthew in Matthew 11 of the kingdom being subjected to violence because Herod had a heart at war, and that heart made him crazy. I mean really crazy. He was crazy, crazy. His father was in the line of Jewish priests, but his mother was an Arab, so even his lineage was at odds with itself, and his father lined up politically with the Romans, so even though Herod was raised as a Jew, his family was not considered all in, and, and that was something that always bothered Herod. He wanted to be all in, he, so he, to, to be the center of things. And the Jewish world couldn't give him that, And so he aligned himself with the Romans like his father did. He lived in Israel, but his heart was never there. Do you, do you hear how that could build attention in a life? Yeah. Maybe you've experienced that, of having your body in one place, but your heart someplace else. The day Herod was made king of Judea by the Roman government, he he walked out of the Senate, up a hill, and made a sacrifice to pagan gods. That's when Herod went to war with the Jewish world. His wife's brother was a priest who was well-loved by the people, so Herod had him drowned in the palace pool. And as that weren't bad enough, he killed three of his own children because he was afraid they might become more powerful than him. Someone has said that the shadow of the cross falls over the story of Jesus from this moment on, Matthew chapter 2, because Herod's life is a great example of the kingdom suffering violence, because his reign is the beginning of violence against followers of Jesus. Right in the middle of the Christmas story is a man so intimidated by the prospect of a child with power that he will kill a village of babies just to make sure one doesn't get through. Can you imagine in Augusta, Georgia, which is a whole lot bigger than Bethlehem in those days, finding out that 20 children died on the same day? You can imagine it would not have been a huge moral dilemma for Herod to have all those babies killed after he heard that a rising king might be among them. He'd already killed his own family, so it's not a big leap for him, evidently. His whole life was defined by his need to be seen. Listen. His need to be seen as the most powerful being in his province. Which means that he had a heart at war with everything that didn't support that need. So let's talk about a heart at war. I've been rereading The Anatomy of Peace, and really, this time around, I've read this book a couple of other times. This time, I have absorbed it differently. I highly recommend it. Um, Especially if you're looking for a better way to be in relationship with people, especially people with whom there's tension. It's called The Anatomy of Peace, written by the Arbinger Institute. The book is written as a story, it's an allegory, so it's an easy read, but the point of the story is to teach the principles of conflict, how it happens, how how to keep from getting sucked into polarizing situations. And one of the key things the book teaches is about how we paint ourselves into a corner or put ourselves into a box when we operate from a self-centered or, or selfish or needy or unhealthy place. It happens when we find ourselves at odds with someone else and feel the need to win. We start to build a, a case, right? Now, I know this sounds familiar, not because you do it, but because people you know do it. This, this need to be understood. And we all know how it works in real life. Something happens that rubs us the wrong way. Somebody does something that offends us or we get our feelings hurt and we begin to build a case internally for why they're wrong and we're right. Our internals start to push against the externals. And here's what they say. They say that when we start to build that case, we're really building a box that we we, we put ourselves in, we box ourselves in, and that limits our ability to find peace without going to war. And there's some typical boxes that we build, right? Like, like, like one of the boxes we might build is an I deserve box, as in I deserve better than the treatment that I'm getting, or, or, or I deserve better than that statement, or I deserve better than the way you're acting. Or we might even think I'm, I'm the better person here and I deserve to be known that way. Now we might not say it that way, but that's how we, we, we operate out of that feeling. Does it sound familiar? Is it making sense? Or sometimes we can put ourselves in a box by believing not that we're better, but that we're not good enough. We can actually put ourselves in a box by hiding behind our insecurities, which creates a feeling of being trapped. We end up focusing on our own problems and our own not good enough parts of us or the thought that others see us in that way. And that creates conflict because we're constantly trying to fight to get up there where the other person is in our heads. That's what we do. Sometimes we put ourselves in a box when we have an overactive need to be seen in some kind of way, like a need to be seen as right or valid, or maybe we need to be seen as spiritual, or maybe we need to be seen as morally pure. In Herod's case, it was a desperate need to be seen as having power and as the rightful leader. He couldn't stomach, you remember we underlined it when we got there in in Matthew chapter 2, the Magi came and said, Can you tell us where the king of the Jews is? We've come to worship him. He could not stomach the idea of anyone else being the king of the Jews. He was so obsessed with this need to be seen as that he spent the first three years of his reign as king trying to prove he was the king when he was already the king. A lot of people died because of that need he had. That's the extreme, of course, but we all do it in degrees spend our time trying to make sure people see us as whatever we think we need to be seen as, so we have a place, we fight our way to the table. In the Anatomy of Peace, they say that when we put ourselves in one of those boxes, we have a heart at war, which sounds exactly like what Herod suffered from. And as we said, his case is obviously an extreme example. You don't want to think that you have a heart at war, but... (laughs) In the world of conflict management, we all pretty much fall into one of those two categories. We either have a heart at peace or a heart at war. It's the only categories you've got. Whether we're killing people or arguing over something at home, those are our choices. So how do we get to a heart of peace? I mean, does it mean I can never disagree with anybody? You can sign me out of that right now if that's the case. Does it mean I always have to give in so someone else can get their way just so I don't have a heart at war? That's not it at all. That's not it at all. Although, actually, this is kind of ironic, we can give in and still have a heart at war. In Herod's case, that heart destroyed him. He literally became horribly diseased and died. Someone, I think it's Josephus, listed all the problems. He had gonorrhea. He had his internal organs begin to eat up each other. And then he lists all the things that were wrong with Kara that killed him, and the last one was, and very, very bad breath. (laughs) Isn't that hilarious? I actually listed that. I'm thinking to myself, in in an age when dental care probably was not a high priority, you had to have really bad breath to have that noticed, Okay. He had so extremely painted himself into this need to be seen as box that he was eaten up with a need to be seen as, in his case, powerful. And in that quest to be seen, people around him became, listen to me, objects to be conquered rather than people to be understood. And of course, the Christmas story is not meant to be a moral lesson for us in conflict management. Herod's atrocities are just that. They are historic atrocities in the story, the very true story of our Messiah's coming. But Herod's story does remind us that whether it is in the extreme or in the everyday, the kingdom of God suffers violence whenever we choose a heart at war rather than a heart at peace. So out of Herod's radically violent world, I can actually find a truth that is his home for us. The kingdom of heaven is subject to violence every time we put ourselves in a box that pits ourselves against others. The kingdom of heaven is subject to violence every time we put ourselves in a box that pits us against others. And the kingdom of heaven suffers the violence of people who don't get Jesus who Jesus really is. And the kingdom suffers the violence of laziness. And the kingdom suffers the violence of unbelief, of hard hearts, of broken hearts. The kingdom suffers the violence of the dark, of a kind of deafness to the sound of holiness. And the kingdom suffers the violence of a demonic world that has lost the war but continues to fight battles all the way to final full defeat. And yet the kingdom never quits coming. It forcefully advances. It never gives up, never gives in, never lets go, never loses sight of the goal. Even if you have a heart at war, even if you are suffering the kingdom, the kingdom never stops advancing on your behalf. When Jesus cast demons out of people's bodies, he'd point to that and he'd say, look y'all, that's the kingdom coming. And every time we see a demon leave a person today or or see a disease cured, we can point to it and say, That's the kingdom coming. We are pushing back against the spirit of Herod. Every time, through the power of prayer, we experience and advance the kingdom of God. So be encouraged, dear friends. The enemy has lost the war, and if we will take authority as as Jesus has given us permission to do, then the enemy will lose the battles he wages in your life and in mine. And in the bargain, we will begin to expose the kingdom of God, revealing God's power and his truth on earth. And we will discover in ourselves a heart at peace. Because listen, the kingdom of God suffers violence and the kingdom of God forcefully adva- advances. <laughs> so don't be worried about that translation. It, it's trying so desperately to grab all of it up into one basket so you can get it. It's both things. And the one we participate in, suffering violence or forcefully advancing, the one we participate depends on which heart we have. So do you have a heart at war or do you have a heart at peace? So let's go back to Matthew 11 and look at the other option. Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God has suffered violence and violent people have been raiding it. Other versions say that the kingdom of God advances forcefully because violent people have been raiding it. What's that mean? It draws out the positive, actually. The fact is, the kingdom of God is coming and it will not be stopped. In our Christmas story, Matthew chapter 2, we can see it in Mary and Joseph's resolve to bear this child into the world, even if it meant suffering violence because they believed the angels that Jesus was the Christ. We see it in the magi who pressed in to a sign and followed it even when it put them in the presence of a tyrant. Even after it became clear that there was a price on this child's head, that Herod was coming after baby Jesus, that angels would be sent to warn Joseph to grab his family and escape while the getting was good. That's, that's raiding the kingdom and getting it out there. That's what it means. Mary and Joseph stayed faithful. They pressed into this call and they went where it took them. And the Magi... The Magi chose not to report back to Herod, even though that had to have been a dangerous thing. They were just six or eight miles from him. They chose to ignore a tyrant, which couldn't have gone over well. But there was, there was, theirs was not a heart at war. They had a heart of peace. They had bowed down before the Prince of Peace. It was a heart focused not on their needs, but on the kingdom of God. Do you hear the difference? It's in the focus. They were focused so intently on God and God's plan and God's kingdom that someone's heart at war had no impact on their choices. Let me say that again. (laughs) If we can become so focused on God's kingdom and God's plan, our hearts don't have to pay attention to those who have a heart at war. And someone's heart at war does not have to impact our choices. Consequently, those decisions hatched in hard times, advanced the kingdom of God. So when Jesus says things like violent people are raiding the kingdom, this seems like exactly what he means. He's talking about people with a heart at peace who are so desperate to see the kingdom come, who are pressing in, who are picking up what the enemy meant for evil and running toward the kingdom with it. Anybody see the Georgia game yesterday? Who saw it? I'm always surprised by how few of you see the game every day. This is, listen, you live in Georgia. You have to watch the University of Georgia play every, it's, it's, it's required. But in case you did not in case you didn't, they played yesterday, um, they played LSU for the SEC championship, which they won. Um, and, and they thought LSU, it was very right early in the game, LSU thought they'd be kicking a field goal, but it got blocked. And the ball ended up sort of dribbling off in the field of play. And LSU players evidently didn't realize that counts as a fumble. And so one of our guys looked at the ball. He went, it's a funny little thing. He looked at the ball, he looked up at the ref, he picked it up and he started running. <laughs> and he made—he he ran the length of the field and he, a 95 yard touchdown. This is our desperate need, friends. This is what it looks like to have both a heart at peace and a passionate pursuit of the kingdom. It is to take all of the pressures of a world at war and rather than staring at it or focusing on the other team, pick it up and run for all your worth toward Jesus. All right, my, base, my that's good. Am I good? I'm good. You thought I was asleep, didn't you, during the game? I was writing a sermon. This is how Charles Spurgeon puts it when he talks about that line in Matthew 11. He talks about the fight to get to the place of salvation. And then he says, the violence doesn't end when a man finds Christ. And when he's talking about violence, he's talking about everything you had to push through to get there. Do you remember when you got saved? Do you remember that moment? when you finally came home to Christ or the the day it finally dawned on you that everything you had before probably wasn't a Christian and now you are a Christian, the day you realized that you truly were a wretch like the song sings and you had to crumble in the presence of God and say, oh my goodness, I am a wretch and I cannot save myself. Do you remember that day? Do you remember it? If you haven't had it yet, maybe you won't understand that violence can sometimes be Jesus pushing you through the door into the kingdom of heaven. But the violence does not end, Spurgeon says, when a man finds Christ, it then begins to exercise itself in another way. The man who is pardoned and who knows it then becomes violently in love with Christ. He doesn't love him just a little. He loves him with all his soul and all his might. He feels as if he could wish to die for Christ. And his heart pants to be able to live alone with his Redeemer and serve him without interruption. Mark such a man who is a true Christian. Mark his prayers, and you will see there is violence in all his supplications when he pleads for the souls of men. Mark his outward actions, and they are violently sincere, violently earnest. And Spurgeon says we are blessed if this kind of holy violence is in our spirit. If it is, then you'll be able to shake the gates of heaven on behalf of those you love and for the sake of kingdom causes. You will be able to pick Jesus up in whatever circumstances you're in and run for all your worth toward the kingdom. You will be able to plead and wrestle and shed tears for things that matter to Jesus, for people whose souls you care deeply about and for systems that, that, and processes that welcome and advance the kingdom of God. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? That kingdom violence, kingdom violence is really kingdom passion, not passivity. Kingdom violence says, I will be undignified for the sake of a lost and hurting world that I will ignore the tyrants, that I will refuse a heart at war, that I will stop listening to my self-centered niggling and decide that I will go after something as big as the kingdom. I'll become so impressed with the kingdom, in fact, that the little niggling things won't even matter to me anymore. And Spurgeon says this, you don't take the kingdom of heaven with a troop of dead men. Never, he says. We want living pastors, living leaders, living servants of God, living people alive with faith, with fire in their bones, who have got tongues of life and eyes of life and souls of life, or we will never see the kingdom of heaven taken by storm. I know I'm quoting a lot here from this other guy, but I have to give you this one last little bit from Spurgeon. He says, oh, my brethren and sistren. <laughs> he lived in the 1800s. Oh my, oh, my people, what we want today in the churches, I want you to hear this. What we want today in the churches is violence, not violence against each other, but violence against death and hell against the hardness of other men's hearts and against the sleepiness of our own <sighs> do you have a heart of war or a heart at peace a heart a heart at war will make you numb to the gospel realities while you are busy trying to be seen as, to make sure you get what you deserve, to make sure you can get up there where all the other people are. A heart at war will keep you in in a very small box. heart of peace will forcefully advance the kingdom. Since the days of John the Baptist, since the terror of Herod, The whole world has suffered violence. And the Magi and Mary and Joseph, who you don't think of as violent people, show us how to respond to that truth. When we take ourselves out of the box and become unafraid of Jesus becoming our king, we can boldly raid the kingdom for all its treasures. So in the story of God, How do we know the good guys from the bad guys? I'll give you a hint it's not their hats. In other words, it isn't usually the outward trappings that prove a person's heart, it isn't their gifts or their position or their opinion, how well they speak. In Matthew's telling of the gospel, it seems to me like we will know who is who by how we relate to the kingdom of God. The good guys will be the ones who forcefully, assertively, carefully, intentionally, lovingly, but not necessarily gently advance the kingdom of God, the, the purposes of God, and the tell, the tell won't be their hats. It'll be their obedience. It'll be their sacrifice. It'll be showing up. Time and time again, it will be a decision to pick it up and run with it, even if you're not sure what the call on the field is going to be. It will be be stretching yourself, trying new things, unafraid of anyone's opinion except Jesus himself. And the good guys will be the ones who go after it who are violently loyal, forcefully faithful. And if those words feel a little, you know, violent or forceful, that's okay. What I want you to understand, is that Greek word, beatsitai? I want you to understand it the way Jesus would use a word like that. He didn't use it to inspire us toward a heart at war. He used it to set us on fire, to help us hear. Passive living will not forcefully advance the kingdom of God. It's not in the force, though. Your anger, your box, it's in the fruit. That's it. That's ultimately it. It's not the force, it's the fruit. And the kingdom of God is passionate about bearing fruit, the kind of fruit that lasts. Will you stand with me? It's one, you know, every just about every week, I say, find that place that's passionate, not passive. And the reason that I emphasize your need to change your posture is that. In my opinion, it's, it's just, it's such a great way to really signify to your brain that we're now in the kingdom of God. We are, we are now in his presence, in Jesus' presence. I'm not just a person waiting for something to get over. I am a person trying to get into the presence of Jesus. So I invite you right now to change your posture. If you want to come here and kneel, you're welcome to come just to the front area and kneel. If you want to kneel where you are, turn and make your chair into an altar, you're welcome to do that. There are, there's a, there's a kneeler in the back if you just want to go and get at the foot of the cross. If it helps you to sit, place your hands, your head in your hands, help yourself. Find a posture that somehow represents your desire to raid the kingdom for every treasure, as we pray That's what we're after, God. I want to raid the kingdom for every treasure this morning. So God, I am I want to come to you broken over the people who are broken in my life. I'm thinking of their names right now, people who desperately need more of you. And and God, I'm asking you to help me, help me figure out how to pick up the ball and run with it on their behalf. God, I am asking you to please bless me with the courage and the boldness, the wisdom to meet your wisdom and power, To, 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 to trust it. Jesus I want to raid the kingdom for every treasure that's available in, in every miracle every miracle that's possible I, I want to raid the kingdom for that so if there's someone in this room who needs the, the miracle of healing whether it's an internal healing or an external healing in just a moment as we continue to worship I want you to come and get prayer if you need a, a miracle today a miracle of salvation a miracle of uh, that, that, that God would remove your heart at war and replace it with a heart of peace if you need a miracle of healing in your life in any way i hope you will raid the kingdom for its treasures you won't somehow paint yourself in a box saying i'm not good enough for that or god won't really do that for me pick up the ball and run with it friends pick up the ball and run with it lord jesus i'm praying that you give us courage to do that which you've given us permission to do. And if you do that, Jesus, we will be so grateful. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus Christ. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our message. If you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you. Visit us or check out our website at mosaicchurchevans.org for more information. May God bless your day.